episode 36 with Neil Donnell. Neil is now the lead tenor singer in one of my favorite bands, Chicago, and he's a Toronto boy. He's had a fantastic career, wonderful singer. I've always uh, loved his singing and followed his career for a long, long time. And uh, I sat down with my co-host, Brian Edwards, and we talked about all of his life and getting into the band Chicago and all those great stories. So sit back, listen. This is Neil Donnell. All right, well, we're rolling with Neil Donnell. Uh, It's nice to have you. I've... uh, uh, quietly followed your career for a long time. I think we we probably we just chatted here about mutual friends. I'm sure we have some mutual friends from the Toronto area. I'm a good friend of Pepe Francis and all those guys that. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, great guy. Yeah. Great player. Great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And it's nice having you on the podcast here, and we're really uh, very happy about your your career and and uh, now singing with Chicago, and it must be uh, just an absolute thrill i know you've had some amazing moments in your life but it's nice to kind of to see it just keeps rising and rising that's it's pretty awesome yeah it's uh, uh it's been kind of one surprise after another for the last number of years you know it's been uh, a lot of blessings you know i've been very fortunate um, yeah. you know um it just goes to show you you know if if you stay on top of your game you know and you uh you conduct yourself with dignity and integrity uh, you never know what can happen at any age. You know, the phone could ring, and uh, that's what happened to me. I was in in New York in December of 2016 when the phone rang for the first time. Wow! Yeah, that's great. Excellent. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. well, we'll get to that story. Let's go back. Uh, I always like going back to to the beginning and and finding out where you came from. You're you're Montreal boy originally. Is that correct? Yes, I wasn't born there, but I, I certainly spent my formative years there. Um, you know, I think I, I was two or something when my my father was transferred there, and uh, I stayed there till I was about until uh, I graduated high school. Oh, okay. okay. In Quebec, was at about uh, I think I was seventeen. Yeah. And were you involved musically with anything when you're that age, or um, when when she? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. Um, you know, uh, in high school, I was in a couple of bands in high school and uh i used to uh MC the annual variety show there it was a which was kind of a big deal it was part of the winter carnival yeah and uh i was part of a a folk mass a choir you know a bunch of different musical pursuits uh, when i was a teenager so who was it when you first started singing that kind of got you wanting to sing were there certain artists certain bands certain singers songwriters that that really kind of made you jump into the, into singing? You know, a, lo- a lot of different people uh, influenced me over the years. Um, certainly uh, one of the ones I remember, and, and I met him a couple of years ago for the first time, was, was James Taylor. But, you know, I liked uh, a lot of the classic rock stuff back then. Yeah. The Zeppelin and The Doors. And uh, when the first Chicago album came out, I was in high school. And, uh, you know, that was the second band I was in. We were, it was a horn band. Oh, wow. And we were doing Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears and a couple of Lighthouse tunes. And, you know, since then I've you know, become friends with all the Lighthouse guys. And Yeah, so it was a really a, a lot of different artists, you know. That I, w- I would sing anything that I, any song that I, I enjoyed or I liked. Do 
you remember what your first actual paid gig was? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those things stay with you because, you know, that's the designation of being a professional, right? You get mm-hmm. paid for the first time. I think I was 14. Uh, yeah, I would have been 14, and it was a little chalet in a little uh, a little park not far from where I lived, and it was a little dance there one night, and uh, I think I I, remember, I made about four dollars and seventy five cents. That's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. That was, yeah, I mean, you know, it was enough to uh, to to make you feel like you were a pro. Nowadays, four dollars sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd be happy to make four dollars right now. <laughs> so yeah. then, from Montreal, where where did you move uh, to at that point? Well, my family moved uh, to New Brunswick, uh, where my father was originally from, uh, actually to the northern part of the province. He was working for a, a company that owned um, 50 or 60 mining companies across the country. And uh, I ended up doing that for a while. I ended up working in the mines, and I worked at a, a smelter, and I worked at a fertilizer plant for about two years wow. until I figured out... Um, Maybe this wasn't what I wanted to do yeah. for a living. Even though you know it's good hard work, and I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, so I ended up uh, going to university in Fredericton, yep. to the University of New Brunswick, mm. to get out of it. And when I was in Fredericton, I ended up working with a local band there to work my way to university and help me to pay for it. So Good old East Coast. <laughs> yeah. When I, when, I, when I finished up there, I uh, I headed back to Montreal. I stayed in Montreal for two years. Started doing session work in Montreal. Yeah, that was uh, in the early '80s. And then uh, I I had a day job. I was a, actually a lab technician for a couple of years, and I got laid off when the recession came in the early '80s. And I knew that there was you know a uh, a thriving session scene here in Toronto, and uh, you know I I had a connection here through that with a production company. but So I ended up moving here and uh, ended up never working for that particular production company. But over a, the course of, a, I guess, a two or three years, I got a, I got a foothold in that business of, of the session business here. Yeah. And, you know, become a, became a staple in that circuit. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was my principal bread, bread and butter for more than 20 years. That was really back in the good old days when that stuff was just cranking out every day. Um, yeah. I, I still tell the story of one, one day in particular, I remember. Uh, it would have been probably late 80s. I had, I think it was 12 or 13 or 14 recording sessions in one day. Wow. <laughs> one day. Like wow. running from studio to studio all day long. I think it started about 9 in the morning and I got home about 11 that night. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, it was great. I mean, uh, so I did the tally a few years ago and realized, you know, in, in the course of my career, I had I had logged over 10,000 recording sessions. That's crazy. Good God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, That's it, wild. It was stunning to realize I had done that many. Yeah. Wow. You know, and I still do them from time to time, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's quite rare now, of course, because everything has changed. When that was going on, it was probably a bit of everything, but there's a lot of jingle work probably as well. Jingle work was probably 70 or 80 percent of it. Yeah. Mm. And other things were, you know, you'd work on movie soundtracks or television shows, you know, 
anything that needed voices on it, you know, you ended up. Uh, and then I had, you know, a bunch of American clients I used to work for. I one in Austria, one in Memphis. Yeah. And then another, uh, some people I used to work for a little bit in Chicago and L.A. So was the Strictly Canada. Well, that's great. Yeah. In those days, there wasn't the technology there is today. You probably had to almost be there all the time in those spots. Yeah, you did. You did. Yeah. You are never there. In fact, the, the two clients I had, the one in Austria and the one in Memphis, I've never met those people. Wow. Yeah, I've never, you know, I've never met them. I'm just, and uh, yeah, you just, almost everything is done remotely. I mean, uh, you know, case in point, uh, the band uh, had a, a little thing with CBC, uh, NBC uh, TV in Chicago a couple of weekends ago that we all did like this. Yeah. This is the time to be stuck at home because you have lots of technology to to get you yeah. through it and be able to do conversations like this and, um you know, we've talked before uh, on another podcast, Brian and I, about if this was 30 years ago, I think everyone would start going insane. <laughs> yeah, this is, the, this is the thing that's kind of keeping us connected now. Absolutely. Absolutely. You bet it is. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, I guess we can be grateful for that. You know. yeah. So we're, when you're, you're busy doing all the, the jingle work and, and session work, were you uh, at all working on a, any form of solo career? Um, singing wise or are you just so slammed with that type of work that that was your, your every bit yeah I was, I was so busy with with doing that you know there wasn't a heck of a whole lot of time for for other things and uh i did end up doing a couple of uh i was approached by people you know all the time uh, i ended up working with a, a couple of guys here in toronto in a, once again in the early the mid 80s uh, who were doing uh who were songwriters producers and songwriters and I released a couple of singles with them, I think three, maybe four even. And they all did really well. They all were top, you know, top 10, top five in, in Canada, uh, sort of adult contemporary MOR sort of stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, because I would also, one of the things I also did a lot of was uh, you would do song demos for people, for writers, you know. Yeah. I worked with people like Stan Meisner and... Uh, Oh gosh, uh, 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 what's uh, Eddie Schwartz? Uh, a lot of different people, and these songs would would get pitched to other artists. You know, yeah. they were writing for other artists. So a lot of people who wouldn't normally hear my voice, you know, heard, would hear my voice, like Joe Cocker, uh, Roger Daltrey, Kenny Rogers, people like that. Uh, Michael McDonald. A lot of people heard my voice, so you know, my name got around a little bit. Then, then at one point, uh, there was a guy here in Toronto, uh, a pretty well-known Canadian writer-producer, very talented guy named Tim Thorny. Yeah, I know Tim. You know Tim? Yeah, yeah. 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 absolutely. Yeah. Tim lives up in Collingwood now. Yeah. And he got into the country thing, you know, when that was starting to happen in the early the mid-80s, the whole new country thing. He went down to Nashville and wrote uh, three tunes with a guy named Don Schlitz. Yep. No yeah. doubt. Yeah, you know that name, yeah. Well, yeah. you know. Speaking of Kenny Rogers, the gambler, that was the Don Schlitz tune, right? Yeah. So they came. Tim came back with the tunes, and he they were written, but they hadn't been demoed. And they called me to demo the tunes out because you know they I had sort of gotten a reputation that I could cover virtually every genre, you know, uh, you know, from country to you know metal to jazz to whatever. Uh, so they called me and asked me to sing the demos for them for presentation purposes, and they were dealing with Sony at the time, uh, 
Sony uh, was, you know, was shopping the demos. And the, uh, the people at Sony heard my voice and said, well, you know, why don't you do a record with this guy? So I ended up doing two records with them uh, under a pseudonym. Don Nielsen. I, yeah. Don Nielsen, you bet. <laughs> we know it well. Okay. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, the songs still get airplayed. And, you know, I think I was nominated for uh, three Geminides, uh, the Gemini tried of Junos. And a whole slew of Canadian country music awards. I think I, I, I got nominated for five or six of those, but uh, that was it. So I did, you know, three records, and they were fun. Yeah, I was, and, a, big, I was a big fan of the country stuff, and I remember back in the day when, too. when uh, they were out. I was doing a lot of front of house work, uh, live work. I had a little um, sound company, and we'd go out and do a lot of shows, and your album was one of the albums I always used to play to test the PA out. Um, <laughs> yeah. That, it was that, and uh, uh, Donald Fagan, the Nightfly album, and, right. and interesting enough, uh, Joel Feeney, his country album, uh, oh, yeah. I really enjoyed. Um, oh, and, yeah, Joel, Joel's great. He's yeah. a good friend of mine. Yeah, so the three, those three albums used to circulate, uh, and I used to use them for kind of pre-show music for quite a long time. <laughs> Yeah. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, it's interesting all of a sudden you you take on a, a country career for a while and, and uh that becomes popular for you. Yeah, well I always I always you know, I always liked country music. I was a fan of the genre. When I was working in the mines, the way you would get to the mines every day, because nobody would take their car on the mine road because it was a disaster. So you would get picked up by a guy in a in a van. You should be ten or twelve <laughs> in a van, you know, and they would take the seats out and put wooden bench seats in it you know what i mean yeah so they could accommodate a lot of people it was about a 25 or 30 mile run to the oh. one way and uh the ra- there was only one radio station in the town and morning uh, was the time they slotted country music oh yeah so on the on the way to the the mine uh that's what you would hear i mean it was uh charlie rich and charlie pride and george jones and you know it was old school stuff back then you know before before Vince Gill came along and people like that, Ariba and Shania, you know. The good old stuff. Uh, yeah, but that's the stuff I sort of learned and, and you know, I became a, a giant George Jones fan. And ended up working with Shania on something at one point and, and did, a cup, did a session one time with Vince Gill and I worked with Billy Ray Cyrus on a thing one time. So, you know, it was fun. It's funny, we do a lot of work with Charlie Pride, and when you mentioned the smelter, he used to work on in one up in Washington State when he was getting into the music business, so and all kinds of kinds of come around. I've heard this story from him too. I love working and taking the trucks in and all that stuff. And he, he he's so great. Even you know, yeah. even to this you know, to this eighty seven years old and he's still going at it. <laughs> still, yeah, he looks great and he still sounds good. Yeah, excellent. Remarkable. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah, Brian has booked uh, Charlie in Canada. For how many years have you booked Charlie now? For <laughs> how far back do you want to go? 32, 33 years maybe? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, and and one, one of the first dates we did was Campbellton, New Brunswick. So that's why I remember that area quite well. Really, yeah. Well, I was yeah. over in Bathurst. That's where oh, I was. Oh, were you? Yeah, yeah, we worked that arena there too. You bet. Yeah. yeah. Well, that yeah. Yeah, country music is huge up there. Yeah. Oh, you bet it is. Absolutely. So- yeah. So that was, you know, it was a, an interesting experience. You know, I had never been involved with a major label before. And uh, it was a bit of an eye-opener, to to be honest with you. Uh, but, you know, you 
to get a, a, an understanding of how that business worked was uh, uh, wasn't wasn't a bad thing going forward. You know. Yeah. It, it, it certainly was eye opening, though, as I said, because I was, you know, the whole session thing, the whole studio thing. You you kind of live in a bubble. Yeah. For you know. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a very controlled environment. Only the sort of the top people get to do it. And it's and it pays well, you know. The scale payments are quite good, and you get residual payments. But once again, that that's all in the past now. That's all virtually vanished. So, yeah. Did you do any pre-records for any of the TV shows that are happening? Uh, I'm trying to think of what was happening at that time. I know there's a lot of pre-records with Rita McNeil's show and all that. I was stuff. yeah, I was I was on virtually every pre-recorded Rita McNeil thing. Oh. Wow. And also, I worked for five or six years on Canadian Idol. Oh, good. Wow. That's great. Yeah. So, did you do did you do the Hunter shows as well? I, I didn't do the Hunter shows, and that was a little before my time. What okay. I ended up doing was the uh, the anniversary show that he had. Right. Uh, you know, that's a while ago now. It's probably 10, 15 years ago. I remember it well, yep. Yeah. 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 Don Reed was on it. and uh, Yeah. A bunch yeah, it of sure was. Who, you know, the originals were on it, but I was just, uh, yeah. So I was involved with that, but but not as Don Nielsen, just as me. Oh, good. And then I did uh, another show. Just came to mind was uh, how do you solve a problem like Maria? You know, that was the yeah. one, that show that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, I can't remember what else I got I've done over the years, but. Um, well, I certainly I heard heard one of your recent projects. A mutual friend of ours, Hayward Parrott. Uh, had a client by the name of Frank Mills that I worked oh, yeah. after for 30 years that came in and did the uh, Flanders Field song that Frank had written. And boy, I'll tell you, it's a beauty. You did a wonderful job on that song. Yeah, that was, that, yeah, that was uh, well, you know, Frank was an extraordinarily talented uh, musician. And, and of course, Hayward, you know. Oh, boy. One of the, the country's best uh, producer engineers ever, ever. Best set of ears on anybody, you bet. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, man, you know, just world class. Absolutely yeah. world class and, and such a lovely guy. So. Yeah, that was fun to work on. Of course, it was kind of kind of hits you. You know, it's, it's it does a pretty emotional thing, that, and, and it was so, so well written. Yeah, yeah excellent. That was an honor to do that. Did you do any touring when you did the country stuff at all, or you? Uh, a little bit, yeah. a little bit. You know, it was so competitive back then. Yeah, uh, and you know, Sony uh, were putting all their uh, their money behind it. Prescott Brown. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was there. They were really trying to get them established in the U.S. and uh, with mixed results, I think. But you know, the market that marketplace was so congested. You know, the labels were just signing acts like like crazy and throwing things against the wall. And if you if your first record did okay, you know, you had an option to maybe do a second one. And of course, a lot of them didn't. A lot of them fell by the wayside. Uh, so getting on a touring spot as an opening act was, you know, really tough. Yeah. Uh, you know, BMG was the label that were, were, were really putting a push behind their artists. That's why, why Charlie Major, one of the reasons Charlie did so well, because, you know, BMG had a, a lot of votes going on in, in the various places. Yeah. And they were really <laughs> promoting heavily and they were, you know, they were, they were pushing him hard and it paid off. So. Yeah. You know, he did. He did very well, but you know, once again, it was very hard to break into that U.S. market, and they were never able to do that with him either. You know, in a substantial way. Uh, it's just you know, I had my experience with it. 
there were people in Nashville that heard what I had done, and they were very, very interested. And uh, so much so that the, the country rep in Sony flew down there one night to find out there was a buzz going on about me. And because uh, there was a couple of reviews, a couple of the singles that I had done that were, you know, they really said some very, very glowing things. And this one particular guy, uh, you know, this guy, if he didn't like you and didn't like what you were doing, he, he could be pretty harsh. But he said some glowing things about me. Robert K. Orman? Yeah. That guy, yeah. 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 He, he wrote a couple of great reviews. And so there, a buzz started. So the Sony rep flew down, and then he called me from the plane on the way back home, and he put the old good news, bad news scenario. He said the, the bad news is they're, they're not interested in you as an artist, but the good news is they're interested in your songwriting, yeah. uh, tree publishing. So if you want to send them songs, you know, they'd be more than willing. But, you know, I had a career going, and I found it a little disheartening, you know. Yeah. And, but it was part of my education into how it really worked. You know, you could... The, the American artists could come and access our market to their heart's content. It was easy. But for us to do the same down there, it was the door did not swing both ways. It's worse now. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, protectionism, you know. Exactly. Wears a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of different hats, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was tough. And I know a lot of people were putting great hope, you know, a great store on, on penetrating that marketplace. And it just... Like I said, it was so congested down there, and they had so many artists down there. For them to take on somebody new, you know, other than the very few exceptions, like Shania, of course, she had Mutt Lang in her corner, and, uh, and, and you know, and that whole thing spoke for itself. And of course, Terry Clark, you know, she had she was Canadian, but the, you know, when she finally got acknowledged here in Canada, it was like gravy to her because it was kind of unexpected. But she had had so much success down there that. You know, she began to get acknowledged here. So it's too bad that, you know, that that has to happen. Right. It's there's so much talent here in Canada and and you have to really become popular somewhere else to be recognized in your own country. And back, especially in back in that time in the in the 90s, especially for country, man, that was tough. And there were so many. I know a lot of artists went down and they get a deal. They spend a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars plus on an album and then they would just shelve it um yeah yeah, yeah. and that was it oh, that, that, over and over again you thought you had a career you, you know you going to nashville making a big album your life is set and no they had that much money at that time they could just nah we don't feel this and we're just gonna write this one off and and hold you up for a few years and absolutely yeah absolutely there's a, there's a guy uh, a toronto-based writer producer who uh Got a lot of success. He wrote Kelly Clarkson's uh, first hit, uh, which ex- which escapes me now. Flying, something to do with flying. And he had another. He had a project on the side uh, that the, with a, with a, somebody else here in Canada. And the name of the project escapes me. But I, my understanding is that the record label had spent over a quarter of a million dollars on it, and it just got shelved. It, it got never never got released. They just they just ate it and went away and he fortunately for him had, in his contract he had a big advance yeah and then he ran on a great streak of luck he, he ended up getting winning the green card lottery oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. oh god <laughs> i remember those <laughs> yeah. exactly mm-hmm. and yeah. he ended up relocating to la and he's been there ever since and has had a very successful career down there 
So, but, but most things are few and far between, as you know, and you're exactly right. That's what happens here. You've got to go outside of the country sometimes and get success there before you get acknowledged here at home. Absolutely. Now, that happens a fair amount. I think yeah. that's, that's pretty common knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunate, but... Um, and, and then you get a few that end up moving down there, and then they just have to move back because it just it dries up. Yeah. And, you know, and that's tough on a career, too. You, you move to Nashville, and you've got a few songs under your belt, and things are looking good. I'm not sure if it's better in that circumstance to have a bit of success and then have to kind of walk your way back home again than to than to just have it shelved and go on to something else. I don't know. Sure, I'm not sure what the better one of the two is because it, it's hard on you to to have yeah. success and then and have to kind of walk away from it. So I don't well, know. yeah, you, you know, uh, I know somebody that that you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I won't mention his name, but exactly the situation he found himself in. Yeah. You know, he ended up he was going back and forth to Nashville all the time, and he had a little bit of success. You know, with a with one song in particular, with a with a major artist down there, and then it just kind of dried up. It just went away, and the the deal went away, and and now he's back here. And of course, you know, you know, it's the old story about Nashville. You know, why why aren't there any napkins in Nashville? <laughs> you know that joke, that story? No, no. <laughs> I got an idea for a song. Oh yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. well, but it is true, true, though. Everybody in Nashville is either a, a you know a budding artist or a, a writer, right? That's right. Exactly. I remember I the, hear... the times I went down there, and you know, going into the studios, and the you know the cork bulletin boards in the the lobbies of the studios would have people's business cards on them and they'd be people to stack their cards on top of each other. They'd be like 10 or 12 deep. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty competitive. Um, very, but very. if you happen to get through the clutter, it's a great place to be in and it's a great ride. If you can, you can get on, on the right wave, but, uh, sure. Yeah. Is, sure. Is yeah, if you're one of the VA people, you know, mm-hmm. if you're one of the people that are, you know, the Paul Franklin's and the Vince Gill's and the, you know, people like that, yeah. Uh, you're in a good place, but exactly. it's always the same. You know, it's like the old adage about, you know, 1% of one percent of the fishermen catch 99% of the fish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the same thing with musicians, about 1% oh, boy. of them get about 99% of the studio work, I'm going to say. Yep. But that's a different skill. That's a different skill. You know, there, sure are, there are great players who, who can't necessarily uh, 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 translate their skills into the studio, and vice versa. Yep. And vice versa. Yeah. You know, so that that's that's pretty common too. So when you finish up the country stuff, and what was kind of the next thing? And I'm sure at that time, studio the studio land busyness in Toronto was starting to to fade a little bit. It began to taper off in a in a meaningful way, you know, in the mid to late '90s. Yeah, uh, there was still stuff going on, uh, and for me. Uh, the next, the next little uh, pivot was getting involved with an organization that's based actually in London, Ontario, a company called Jeans and Classics. Yeah, I know them very well. Yeah, and they've been around yeah. for more than twenty years now. And I guess so, as you probably, you probably know, uh, which your audience may not, they do uh, predominantly sort of classic rock and pop concerts with symphony orchestras. 
uh, all over Canada and the U.S. Yeah. And they have, I think it's more than 50 shows now, 50 different shows. Wow. wow. So I've known people that have been involved with that, that, uh, that company for a number of years, and uh, they had been talking to the, the owner about me for a long time, and uh, finally an opportunity ar- arose where they wanted to you know, hire me, and, and they brought me in to do a show and, uh, in London, Ontario. And then I sort of became involved with them for, well, I haven't done a show now with them for you know, a little since I've been with Chicago because uh, uh, the schedules conflict, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I ended up doing about 10 or 12 different shows with them. And because I have the ability to sound like a lot of different people, you know, and cover the various genres, yeah. I ended up doing, uh, uh, well, uh, one show I'm, you know, I'm Sting. It's, it's the Sting and the Police show I do. Yeah. I do a James Taylor show. I did a Beach Boys show. I meet a girl, uh, a, a lady named Ricky Franks, a very, very well-known, uh, fantastic uh, Toronto-based singer. Yeah. Do a show called Shaken Not Stewart. Oh yeah. Where we do all, it's all the themes. It's seventeen or eighteen themes of uh, James Bond from the James Bond films. Nice. Wow. Yeah. And that's uh, great. Gosh, there was a, a couple of Beatles shows I did. Oddly enough, they did they did a Chicago. Earth, Wind, and Fire, Blood, Sweat, and Tears show, and I got hired to do it one time after I had been a guest with Chicago, not when I was with the band. Yeah. But they got they hired me to do the Blood, Sweat, and Tears stuff. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and the Earth, Wind, and Fire stuff. That's what I did. Yeah. Wow. Kind of, kind of weird. Great. It's the way it worked out. So don't give them the Chicago stuff. Give them- <laughs> yeah. So, so I ended up doing that for about you know probably fifteen years. Oh, great. And, and you no know, kidding. if if, uh, if I'm available and, you know, uh, of course, these things are booked months, sometimes years in advance, these shows. So the opportunity doesn't arise for me to do them much anymore. But who knows what will happen one day, you know? Well, it's a great, uh, great thing for the orchestras because obviously that their markets are, are, are difficult to get people out to nowadays. And, and yeah. I think, you know, bringing rock, classic rock, uh, in with an orchestra, it really is. I think saved a lot of these these orchestras. I mean, those those a lot of their, the biggest shows are these jeans and classics type shows. It saves their butt sometimes. You're exactly right. You, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we we all came to realize that, and and we heard this from people in different orchestras. You know, the, the what they would make from these pop shows would allow them to do the Mahler and the Beethoven and the Chopin shows. Yeah. You know, which That's it's all they, season ticket. For yeah. the most part, for those things, you and bet course, it did. <laughs> sometimes they're not as well attended as as they would like, of course. But you know, the it balances out. So yes, exactly. Yeah, it's funny though. I, I toured a lot with uh, Jim Witter. Do you know Jim? Jim did it. Yeah. See those clothes. Yeah, Jim and I are, yeah. are really great friends. Great guy. Yeah, great, great musician, yeah. talented guy. We did. Uh, we've done a bunch of orchestra gigs, and uh, with his Billy Joel Elton John show, and it's so funny. And I'm sure you've run into this a bunch of times when you, you come into an orchestra type show and they're doing a rock and roll type thing. The place will be packed. They'll doing two or three nights of shows. But man, there's there'd be so many people in that orchestra that just hate it. They just they think they think it's the worst thing in the world. I've I yeah. run into some conversations backstage from people in the orchestra and they're just 
they just think it's the worst thing in the world, even though it's the thing that's keeping them alive and keeping them being able to do shows. But uh, yeah, I would I would notice like you know the you know when you when you were rehearsing it because I don't know if it worked the same with you, but with Jeans and Classics, you do a full run through yeah. of the show in the afternoon of the show, and uh, yeah, you could tell you know who was. The people that took over, they, they were out of there like a, you know, like a shotgun. They were just boom, gone. Yeah. And then yeah. some other people would come up and they would say nice things. And they, you know, I wasn't doing much of the, I mean, Jesus Classics did a, a they do a Zeppelin show, Eagles. Uh, the other show I used to do was Journey and Supertramp. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. But, but Zeppelin and Queen were their big shows for a long time. Yeah. And for some people, you know, that music is, was a little harsh to them, but... When I would do like the James Taylor show, which I did with them a bunch of times, uh, virtually everybody liked the sort of the softer stuff, you know, as long as you didn't take their heads off, yeah. you know, in terms of volume and sonically. And it wasn't, you know, they they didn't mind it for the most part. That's, that was my uh, my sense of things anyway. Doing the James Taylor shows must have been really great. Um, I mean, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan. Uh, Me too. I, yeah. I, had, I had the opportunity to, uh, after a while, you know, they Jesus Classics had this sort of staple of their own musicians that they would use. And then at some point, I had my own band here in Toronto, and uh, at some point, uh, the leader in, in, of Jesus Classics said, well, if you want to bring your own band, you can do that. So I started bringing my own guys, and they knew the material a little bit better, because we had done it uh, outside of the symphony shows as well. Yeah, I had done a bunch of different shows. So I had people like uh, Lou Pomonti, uh-huh. um, yeah, it was a, he was my keyboard player. Also, uh, also played keyboards with a guy named Don Brightup. Yep. Of uh, of Monkey House, you know. Um, yep. Great, two great musicians. Uh, Paul DeLong uh, played drums for me. He was with Kim Mitchell for a long time. And you think he could have got some better players? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alpine was my guitar player. Wow. Uh, and uh, I had, you know, great backup singers, Catherine Rose and Stephanie Martin and Obama. So I, I had these really, you know, really sort of the A team, the Canadian A team in my um, behind me. You know, I guess you did. Yeah, yeah. So everybody loved the music. So and you could feel it. You know, everybody was was totally into you know to reproducing it as best we possibly could. And I did end up. Uh, that's a funny story, you know. Uh, I was in the hotel gym at the Four Seasons in Georgetown in 2018, uh, you know, touring with the band with with Ario Speedwagon that year. Yeah. And uh, I'm in the gym, and uh, who who comes into the gym it was uh, was James. Wow. He was uh, touring with Bonnie Raitt. Yeah. At the time. Uh. And so him and I had a lovely chat for about ten or fifteen minutes. Uh, because he knows Lou Pomani and Bob Mann, of course, I mentioned earlier. And, uh, you know, we had a few names in common. And uh, just out of the blue, you know, there he was. That's so, awesome. Yeah. And uh, cool. I had a little interaction with his sister uh, not long ago as well. So, That's Well, good. one of the things that, that I, I'm, I've been happy about this whole COVID situation is that that the James Taylor tour that was coming through Ontario got postponed because Brian and yeah. I was Brian and I were supposed to be on a tour and I was going to miss the show. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to see that. I thought the combination of Bonnie Raitt and, and James Taylor on, on the same show, uh, loved them both. Um, yeah. 
And then I looked, I saw they were coming through. It's like, I'll look to London. No, can't get to the London show. No, no, can't get to the Toronto show. And uh, so now it's postponed. So now I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, that when it comes back around again, I'll be able to go see it. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, a great combo, the two of them. And I think, I think the U.S. tour he was doing, or at least part of it, was supposed to be with Jackson Brown. Oh, wow. Mm. Who tested positive, you know. Wow. A month or two. Yeah. yeah. Did you know John Prine very well at all or know, have crossed paths with him I, over the years? It, I never met John. Uh, I was uh, an enormous fan of his. Yeah. As, as you know, any songwriter would be. Uh, I mean, he was, to me, uh, he, he was an American treasure. Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the best songwriters that ever has been produced in, in, in pop. I just think his take on things, you know. Mm -hmm. I wrote a song some years ago uh, called Beeswax yeah. that was inspired by him uh, because he, he, I remember reading an interview with him and he, he said he would, he would sometimes write a song uh, around one line that he needed to say. He'd write uh, the entire song around that one, just so he could say that one line in the song. Mm -hmm. So I ended up for the third record I did as Don Nielsen, which I had free reign to do. I ended up writing a song called Beeswax, which was very much like a a John Prine song. And oddly enough, in, in all places, it got a lot of airplay in, in, in Europe, specifically in France. Wow, that's great. Very weird. Very weird, yeah. yeah. Mm. So let's let's chat a bit about your Chicago time now. Obviously, the experience must be fantastic. I've been a huge Chicago fan as well for years. How to talk a little bit. I know you've probably told the story a bunch, but... Talk about uh, that phone call you got in New York and, and what kind of happened after that. Yeah, it was, uh, I was sitting at a restaurant uh, on Broadway at the beginning of December in 2016, I believe it was. Yeah, 2016. And uh, it was actually, initially I got an email uh, from somebody and uh, I thought it was uh, a solicitation. <laughs> uh, they were actually looking for work for me. The, the band was off and, you know, found out I was involved with various projects and I, did I need this person or that person as part of the crew. And, I, you know, I, I sort of wrote it off to that. And uh, uh, my partner at the time who I was with, uh, she said, no, I think I think there might be something more to this, you know. I think there's something more to this. So I got, we got back to the hotel after, after dinner and... Uh, I got another email, and uh, they asked. We said, "We, you know, we'd like to get in touch with you. Uh, can you give us a phone number? You know, you're you're a hard guy to get a hold of." So, okay, now I was intrigued. So I, I gave them my phone number. The next afternoon, we were walking down on the High Line, beautiful December day, and the phone rang, and it was somebody in management. Spent about an hour on on the on the phone with this gentleman, and he expressed to me that you know they were it was coming up to. Uh, uh, the induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That was a few months away. And uh, they were sort of kind of reconfiguring things uh, leading up to that. And one of the things that they'd been thinking about for some long time was uh, was making uh, some changes to the lineup. Yeah. And they'd been aware of me through, through some YouTube stuff that they'd seen and some other things that had been brought to their attention, apparently on the tour bus. Um. So, long story short, I ended up uh, a few months later on a soundstage uh, in Ohio with the band. 
just before a, 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 a corporate show they were doing. And my understanding was that, you know, here we go. And I packed my bag and put everything into place. I had the tour schedule, you know. I had a return airline ticket from, I think it was Houston or Dallas, at the end of that first leg of the tour, which was a little over three weeks, maybe a month. So everything was in place. I got down there, and uh, there was been a lot of miscommunication. Some people had taken some liberties with some stuff that they shouldn't have. And some people, like for me, I, I was just going down there. We were rehearsing. It was like a five-hour rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> and there was another guy there. They had to bring in a bass player because I knew I wasn't the bass player. I didn't, you know, uh, I never said that I was. They never asked me to play bass. Um, they just wanted me to come and sing. So I went down. There was another guy there. And we were going back and forth for four or five hours. I would sing a tune. He'd sing a tune, the same tune. I just kind of thought they were kind of feeling out to see what they wanted him to do a couple of tunes, see what he sounded better on and stuff like that. And that was fine, you know. And at the end of the uh, the five hours, uh, they asked me to come into this room. And it was kind of then that they told me that, you know, much to my surprise, they were going to go with the other guy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I kind of was, first of all, I didn't know what they were talking about, it, it, you know, because it didn't make any sense to me. But they were obviously under the impression that it was it was just an audition. Oh yeah. To me, it wasn't an audition. If if I had known it was an audition, I wouldn't have gone. Personally, yeah. I I don't do that. You know, if yeah. somebody wants to hire me, I'll send you some stuff. But I, I'm long. I don't audition much anymore. I just mm. I, that's, I don't blame you. That's <laughs> done. I'm just kind of done with that. So you know, with all due respect. Um, so anyway, uh, the next the next day, I was on a flight back home, you know, uh, and that was it. And so that gentleman ended up spending, uh, I think he did two years with the band at that point. Yeah. And uh, you know, I you know, uh, he I think he's a, a a good a good player. He was solid. He was a real tenor. He could sing uh, everything with a you know. Well, you know, the word I'm going to use is competent. I think he's really competent, very good, uh, you know, did a fine job. Um, and, and that was it, you know. So that didn't work out. You know, that came to a head. You know, ended up there were some conflicts that, that, that came about. You know, it's really not my, my place to talk about. But that relationship ended. And uh, in the fall of 2017, I think it was October or November, I'm just sitting here at home, and you know, like I said, I had done. Now I had done some guest spots with the band, a bunch of them, and I had formed a relationship with the guys. I, I truly liked these guys. You know, I got to hang around with them. They're very nice people, really down to earth. Yeah. So the phone rang, and it was Lee Lockney, the trumpet player. You know, one of the founding members. Yeah. And uh, but before him, the manager had called me up, letting me know he was going to come. He was going to call me, and uh, he called, and he basically, you know, just said, "Look." We got to make a change again here. You want to come sing with us? And I said, uh, "Let me think about this." <laughs> uh, let me think now. Uh, what am I doing for the next two or three years? Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, you know, but the bottom line was that you know, I mean, I I was fine. I I still had a good career. I've done I've done okay. You know, I. Uh, I wasn't worried about uh, where my next meal was coming from or, or paying a bill. 
And it wasn't about, it certainly wasn't about money because that really wasn't even talked about much. It was just, you know, we liked each other. There was a mutual respect. I mean, Lee Lochnane is one of the kindest, sweetest, nicest people you'll ever meet in your life. Yeah. He's just, uh, uh, just wonderful. And so is, so is Robert and so is Jimmy. You know, these are the founding members and the manager, Peter Chivarelli, who's been the manager for 40 years. Wow. This man is, uh, wow. He's just one of the kindest, nicest. I mean, he's, on the other side of the coin, you, you, you don't want to, you don't want to make Peter upset. <laughs> so I'll leave it. <laughs> My type of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, they have been nothing but kind and generous and supportive to me. Uh, I, just, I can't say enough about, about them all as people. So, you know, that happened. And then I ended up, uh, being a January of the next year of 2018, I was on a plane to Burbank and we spent a week in, in a soundstage in Burbank, California, rehearsing. Yeah. And that's because they were doing something that they'd never done before. They were doing the entire second album in sequence. Oh, yeah. That was the first, first half of the show because that album was under consideration by the Grammy committee for uh, a hall of, uh, Hall of Fame award. Yeah. Uh, the first Chicago record uh, achieved that. So the second one was being considered. So in an effort to sort of move that forward, the band decided to tour that whole record, which had the ballet on it, of course, and uh, it better end soon and a lot of great songs on that. Yeah. So um, that was my, my, my introduction to the band. And then we were, we did one corporate show at the end of that week and we went home for a few days and then boom, we hit it hard. We were out touring wow. for the rest of the year. Yeah. So what was the actual very, the corporate gig probably was the first real gig, but what was the, yeah. the first kind of walk-in audience gig? What was what venue was that? It was in San Francisco somewhere. It was a fundraiser for somebody, uh, Tommy Lasorda. Oh, yeah. What was it? Uh, oh. It was, I think it had to do, it was a charity that his wife uh, had, had, a, had founded uh I think it was for animals, animal welfare of some sort. Yeah. You know, it was a, uh, it was a. Uh, I think we did a, a ninety-minute set. You know, the corporates are usually an hour or ninety minutes, something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the band does probably ten or twenty of those a year. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, some of those are amazing. We did one last year for. Uh, a pharmaceutical company outside of Pittsburgh that was all for charity it was the head of this pharmaceutical company who, uh, who threw this throws this event every year and all the money is given to uh, to charity yeah. and uh, it's always a double bill and our opening act was Peter Frampton oh, oh boy <laughs> yeah. so, that's cool that's yeah, great so, you know we've done shows with uh, well we toured with Argo uh, that year the year before when I, I was guesting with them it was uh, Doobies yeah uh, we've done shows with the Beach Boys, uh, Kenny Loggins, um, what's it, uh, the guy who wrote, um, There's a new kid in town, I know the song. Yeah. <laughs> J.D. Southern. We did a, a bunch of dates with him as our opening act. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we've rubbed shoulders with some some pretty amazing people, you know, I mean, these guys travel in those circles, you yeah, know, they know, exactly. they know everybody. Yeah. No, Every, good. So yeah. a couple of questions, what's, what's your favorite, I would say maybe the era of Chicago you enjoy, or do you have some favorite 
songs where this is the song I look forward to every night doing? Do you have a do you have a list of a few of those? There are so many. You know, I, I don't have a preference. You know, I mean, the very first tune I sing every night is uh, it's question sixty seven and sixty eight. Yeah, which is off the first record, mm-hmm. which was. Um, uh, a Robert Lamb composition, and to me, there's a majesty about that song that just uh, never fails to just totally get me pumped. You know, the adrenaline of that of that piece. And uh, but you know, every night when we do the ballads, um, the you know, if if you leave me now, of course, is uh, is always still huge. Yeah. But then in the second set, we do a hard habit to break. You know, I guess I thought you'd be here forever. Yeah. And and. You know, our love was meant to be. You can't last forever. When we do those, people go crazy. Oh, yeah. They go berserk for the ballads, you know. Uh, but, I mean, then there's 25 or 6 to 4. And then there's, you know, Robert, some nights when he sings, Does anybody know what time it is? I mean, it's always great, but there's some nights I have to turn around and look at him to see if he's, if he's not 20 years old. Yeah. Wow, that, that's a great it's, compliment. It's that's great. Mm. Oh, God. He's just, he sounds great. And you know, Lou Pardini covers um, covers the Terry Kath vocals. Mm-hmm. You know, he does make me smile, and we used to do dialogue together. And uh, it, it, you know, there's just such great material. Just you and me is another huge favorite of mine. Yeah. You know, just so in answer to your question, yeah, I I like everything from every era. You know, uh, I mean, even in the last studio record that they did. Uh, you know, be, before I joined the band, um, there's some great cuts on that record. Yeah. Uh, More will be revealed. I mean, that's classic Chicago. If you if you get a chance after this, go and go on YouTube or somewhere on Spotify and listen to More Will Be Revealed. It's it's just it's classic Chicago. Yeah, I'll check mm-hmm. it out. It's Jimmy it's Jimmy Panko's horn writing that makes and Robert's writing. Yeah. You know, his voicings that you know that's what makes the Chicago sound. So what what are the guys like now as far as hitting the stage? Obviously, they've been doing it a long, long time. Is there is any rituals before you head out on stage, or is it everyone kind of does their own thing, a heads out, and they start doing it, or how how well, does that get approached? Yeah, well, everybody's you know before the show, um, you know everybody's kind of in their dressing rooms. You know, then we get you know the, the our, our tour managers come down, and give us a and production manager, they give us the heads up and let us know it's time to start walking. You know, yeah get the ears in and we get up there and you know, the band is sort of split half and half, half are on one side of the stage, half on the other. But at that point we're kind of bouncing off the walls. Yeah. You know, the energy is pretty, <laughs> it's pretty astonishing. Literally, you know, we're, we're literally jumping up and down. I'm, I'm stretching and doing push-ups and anything to sort of try to even out, you know, the, the adrenaline so that doesn't spike too much, you know, when you first get out there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the camaraderie is, uh, is is a amazing, amazing. You know, everybody is. I mean, I'm telling you, when the support you feel out there, and when you see us smiling on stage, you know, at things, and it's so genuine. There's absolutely nothing contrived about it. Every single night, we feel not only grateful, but you know, honored to be there. Yeah. You know, you know, Robert sometimes will say, you know, when he he first starts talking during the first set, he'll say. We're blessed and we know it. He will tell the audience that. And, you know, I know Robert, him and I have become very, very good friends over the last few years. And uh, this is a man with, uh, 
with great dignity and great integrity, you know, and, and, and an enormous heart. You know, he's very private, yeah. like, like those guys are, and, you know, justifiably so. When you get to know them, you'll under, you understand how grateful they are. You know, this is why mm. they're still doing it, because they're supposed to be. Yeah. Well, it shows if you go see a Chicago concert now. It they hit the stage. <laughs> you bet it, does. it doesn't seem like they've been doing it that long. The energy is all there, and they're not phoning it in. It's it's no. uh, you know it's you can tell no. it's it's they're enjoying every minute of it. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, you know everybody, and you know the band. A lot of people have said, you know, I mean, you, you're never going to please everybody, you know, and people don't like change. You know, they get used to something and you throw a change, but sometimes they, you know, they don't take to it. Uh, other times, uh, most people have. Most people like the new lineup, and, and certainly Robert and Jimmy and Lee like the new lineup. And a lot of it has to do, you know, the rhythm section uh, is different than it's ever been. You know, Wally Reyes uh, was a percussionist before, and he comes from a long line. Of, uh, his father was, he's kind of a legend in Las Vegas. I mean, he played with the Rat Pack, and, you know, all those people. Yeah. Ray Newton and, you know, and uh, Johnny Mathis. So Wally, it comes from this place where not only does he have great finesse and great feel and great chops, but he's got great time, too. Yeah. You know, and he can lay down, you know, and he, Tristan Bowden, you know, one of, the, one of the great drummers of all time, and Danny Seraphine, you know, another guy, another, another uh, monstrously talented individual. But Wally brings this really uh, great combination of things. And then Brett uh, Simons, the bass player, who, you know, was with uh, Fiona Applegate and uh, Brian Wilson. He toured uh, for years with Dwight Yoakam. Oh, yeah. And uh, who else is the other one? Uh, I can't think of some of the other artists, but, I mean, he's a, he's a you know, really musical bass player. So those two guys together, and with Ray Islas on percussion, I mean, the foundation is, is funkier and hipper, and, you know, and, it's, and I think it's ever been. It's, yeah. it's really amazing. Have you ever seen any Wally's... Uh, drum camps that he posts on his Facebook page. I've seen some, yeah, it's really good. Highly recommended, yeah. yeah. You'll see how, how much finesse is involved with his playing, you know. Yeah. So, what size of entourage do you have on the road out there? The touring, every- the touring company is nearly 40 people. Yeah, there's there's three buses just for band. The band has three tour buses. Wow. So, yeah, we're incredible. Really, there's one tour bus for crew, and then there's the truck drivers and stuff, you know. Yeah, we are. We are uh, in in my tour bus, tour bus number three, in the rhythm section, and and myself, and the assistant tour manager. So there's only four of us. Oh, nice. In a bus, in a bus that can accommodate, you know, a lot more. Yeah. Well, that's great. So we're not cramped. Uh, yeah, it's uh, well, you know, this this is a, a rare circumstance even these days. You know, we we don't. Uh, we get to sleep in a hotel every night. Okay. Well, that's great. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> no matter where we go, even if we get there at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, we check into a hotel room. That's good. And, yeah, and we get to stay in some great places. You know, we're often in, you know, a Four Seasons or a Ritz-Carlton's. And not always, but a lot of times, you know, if, we're in, if the city has one, we're often in places like that. So, Not at the micro hotel any time or? <laughs> you know, we, we have actually you know uh if you end up you know sometimes we end up staying in, in an airport hotel because we've got to get a flight out the next morning you know and the venue is too far away kind of thing yeah but we don't want to stay too close to the venue because that means you know getting up that much earlier to get to the airport so we do spend uh, a fair amount of time at airport hotels 
Yeah. Just because it's more convenient. Exactly. I'll, I'll wrap up soon. I know we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, one question I was thinking about, how, how did you find the Chicago fans accepting of new guy coming in? How, how was that experience for you? Well, you know, that's a, that's a kind of almost another conversation in itself, but I'll, I'll make the, sh- the story short because the, so the first year uh, I took a lot of heat. Yeah. And, uh, what some people refer to as I got a lot of shade thrown on me. Uh, you know, uh, I came from nowhere. Nobody knew who I was especially in America. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was stepping into big shoes. Uh, you know, Peter Sotero. Yeah. Remember Jason Sheff had been with the band for 25 years. Jason yeah. had a big yeah. And even the guy, even Jeff after him, Jeff, you know, had gotten a following as well. So, you know, and, and it's the first time the band had ever hired a, uh, basically a standalone front man. It always been a bass player singer. So I came in, you know, I, I play I play guitar a few tunes, but I was a standalone front guy. But what I brought, I think I brought to, uh, something different in, in in my interpretive skills to 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 the way I read the songs. Uh, Maybe you know, not to take anything away from my predecessors because they were all you know brilliantly talented guys, but I think I I, uh, I I sort of brought a freshness that my approach was a little bit different than what people were used to. So over time, people gradually got used to it. And, um, you know, the, the haters, and there were, you know, people, they would, if they want to find you and voice their disapproval of you, they will get to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had my share of that. And, you know, it was, it was, it was surprising to me sometimes, uh, disconcerting, disheartening at times in the beginning, because some of these people were, there's no other word to to use but vicious, you know. And it, it's a particular demographic of, of people that would do it, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I had to, you know, and the, the guys in the band, you know, got wind of it, and they would often come to to my defense, you know, in in social media. And I think you know what happened one night. I, I think the turning point was, or one of the turning points was, uh, I got hired. One of the reasons I got brought on was because. They knew I could cover all three voices oh, yeah. at any given time. And they thought if somebody got sick, I could step in and do that. And that ended up happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ended up happening. I ended up subbing in for Lou. Lou got sick at one point. We all, we all got sick, actually. I got very sick last fall. But Lou got sick and lost his voice for the better part of a tour, so I had to do his tunes. And then Robert got, got vertigo and had to – Robert oh, had missed one show in 52 years. Wow. In 52 wow. years. And then he got a case of vertigo and missed, I think it was three or four shows. So I ended up doing his tunes one night. Uh, actually, three or four nights, rather. And so I think when people realized that maybe there was a little more to me than they thought yeah, and gave me a chance, you know, uh, I, think, I, think, I think a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people changed their minds about me. So... Well, like I said, you know, everybody that steps into a position that, you know, from somebody else is going to take some heat. Yeah. You know, you know, look at uh, at Kelly, who's been, who filled in for Lou Graham, and has been with Forder for years. I mean, there are still people who don't think Kelly is is Lou, mm. and and Lou's not uh, Kelly's not Lou, and Lou's not Kelly. But you know, Kelly stepped up, and he's great. And there are other people too that have had to, you know. Stepping into that those shoes is tough, you know, because people. So one of the things I, I had to learn to do was remember 
I always did it anyway, that you got to give people what they're used to hearing. You know, I can't, I can't let my interpretive skills get uh, too broad. You know, I have to, people need to hear what, what they want to hear. You know, yeah. when they come to a show, they want to hear what they remember. So I endeavor most of the time to, to get as close to those original recordings, you know, uh, without making it sound, you know, like karaoke or it's contrived. Yeah. So that's the balance you have to find, you know, when you're, when you're doing the material of, 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 uh, of uh, artists that's been around for a long time that are people are, you know, it's very much in, in, imprinted on their, their consciousness. You know, you have to, you have to tread that very fine line. And uh, I think, you know, it took a while to get there, but I think I've been pretty successful at it now at this point. Good. I've, I've yeah. watched a few videos just over the last few days and have you singing and it's very much like that you've, I've noticed you've really studied it a lot, but yet there's still you in it. Um, exactly. This is, this is it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I had the conversations with, with Robert, you know, Robert wanted to, uh, uh, you know, make sure that I enjoyed myself, but make make sure that I, you know, I marked certain parts of the song that I did them as they were recorded. Yeah, and I completely got that. You know, every time he would, him and I would have a discussion about something. Uh, you know, we had one just before Vegas. You know, he told me about something. He said it was in Searching So Long. I was taking a little bit of a liberty with a melody in some place, and he said, "Could you just not do that in this place, but over there in the next part? Yeah, go for it." Yeah. And I totally got what he meant, and uh, so, you know, they're the writers, and it, they're the the principals of the band. You know, they're they're the, they're you know they're the bosses. So you gotta you gotta do what the bosses tell you to do. You know, Robert introduces everybody in the band in the second set. Yeah. Uh, just before he does uh, uh, beginnings, and when he introduces me now, you know, he 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 always tells the audience that I I have breathed new life into all the great Chicago songs, especially the ballads. Okay. So when he gives me that vote of confidence and tells that to the audience. Yeah, must feel great. Know, that, yeah, that, that <laughs> reinforces that, you know, that I'm on the right track. That's great. Well, it sounds yeah, great. I, I, I've loved listening to it, and I hope to, uh, as soon as the touring season gets back on track, I, I'd love to uh, see you in the role, because I, I, I've always loved your voice. and, and uh, Me too. Yeah, it just... It, I, I don't think there's a better person for for the job, and I'm really happy for you. I think it's you know it's really great. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a great blessing, and I'm I'm very grateful. We just we just go forward as best we can, and uh, you know with 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 that kind of feeling in your heart, you know that's I think that's always the best approach. Yeah, excellent. I'm going to wrap up one one quick little question I like to ask everybody, and sure. being with. Chicago and you tour and play all over the place. You've probably kind of written off some of your bucket list places of where you've wanted to perform. Do you have any places yet in the world that you haven't venues that you haven't performed at yet? That's on your bucket list that you're, you're hoping to, uh, to get to perform at. Well, yeah, there's a couple, I mean, we've done the forum in LA, uh, you know, and we, we've done the Greek theater there in those two places. Yeah. Uh, uh, the year before I joined, I know they did three or four nights in a row at the Hollywood bowl. That's a place I wouldn't mind doing. Yeah. Uh, Carnegie Hall would be nice too. Yeah. And another venue that I've come close to playing a few times, and the band's played there is Red Rocks in Colorado. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, we've done some. It's amazing how many gorgeous theaters there are, you know, all over North America, all over the world. You know, yeah. I've been in some some jaw dropping places, you know, over the last 
couple of years, more than that actually. And even with Jeans and Classics, you know, we played in some astonishingly beautiful theaters. It's uh, yeah, I bet. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Oh, great. Well, I appreciate your time. Well, thanks, guys. Yeah, it's been it's, it's been a pleasure hearing the stories great. and and uh, great chatting with you and. Uh, we we'll hope to uh, one of these days we'll we'll meet for a coffee and a Starbucks as soon as you can get out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sounds okay. good. Stay safe and stay healthy. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Now. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.